Empire. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question. Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today it's a pleasure to have Dr. Stephen Hoffman with us. He has over 30 years of experience building and managing large, successful research and development programs. He's key in uh, investigating and finding uh, answers to the problems of malaria. And he knows a little bit about dexamethasone, one of the latest treatments for the coronavirus. So when we come back, join us with Dr. Hoffman. And we're back. And Dr. Hoffman, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for joining me, by the way. Um, I guess the, the first question, since the program is just ask the question, I'm going to just ask the question. We were talking before we got on, and you know a little bit about dexamethasone, which is the latest, uh, well, they're not calling it a cure, but the latest, latest treatment for the coronavirus. You have some, some background in investigating this compound. Can you tell us about it? Sure, um, Brian. Um... So dexamethasone is what we call a corticosteroid. And our, our body makes corticosteroids. They're anti-inflammatory molecules. Um, and we've been using corticosteroids, hydrocortisone, uh, dexamethasone, for many, many decades in medicine. Uh, you may know that if you get an allergic reaction, in your skin, like a skin rash, you have to buy a hydrocortisone cream oh, and yeah. rub it on your skin um, to reduce the inflammation because you're getting an allergic reaction, which is an, what we call an inflammatory response. Um, in infectious disease treatments, one of um, I was privileged to uh, work on one and demonstrate one of for the one of the first times in infectious disease that a serious life-threatening disease, severe typhoid fever, could be, in addition to treating it with an antibiotic to kill the bacteria that causes typhoid fever, uh, we, we hypothesized that people were dying uh, in, because of the, the, their own inflammatory response to being infected. And if we could cut down on that inflammatory response, people that would have died would live. And we were able to show that more than 35 years ago, working in Jakarta, Indonesia, in wow. the infectious disease hospital, in a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1984. Um, recently, there was a, an anecdotal well, let, report let, let from me, a team. Let me interrupt yeah. uh, inter uh, for just a second. So what we're saying is that... Um, when it comes to the coronavirus, that using this dexamethasone, you would be able to cut down on the inflammation. And it says a widely available steroid drug may treat the sickest patients. Uh, are you suggesting that it could help those who aren't that sick as well? So let me go back to COVID-19. Yes. And what we, there's plenty that we still don't know, but what seems to be occurring is that Let's just say that I was, became infected. <clears throat> it usually takes about five days before one develops symptoms um, after you've been exposed. And then something happens to those who really get severe COVID-19 disease about a week later. So it's not immediate. About a week later, people who are doing pretty well can all of a sudden dramatically deteriorate. We believe that that deterioration, or some believe it is because the body's response to the viral infection in the lung is to, to massively 
release inflammatory molecules. Some people call it cytokine storm, but it's a storm of inflammatory molecules that, that are your released body from creates. your own cells right. and that that's what kills you and that the dexamethasone can stop the release of those inflammatory molecules called cytokines. So it's not, so what it, we're it doing be... is preventing the body from killing itself by giving an anti-inflammatory. Right, so it wouldn't be useful for those who are suffering mild uh, occurrences or, or mild symptoms. It's only gonna be those who have that inflammatory, that, that secondary uh, dramatic infection. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct, but let's think about the possibility um, that we don't know who's gonna have that secondary cytokine storm. And if we were to Put, let's just say you put everybody on dexamethasone. Right. You might be able to prevent in the in the ten percent, fifteen percent, fourteen percent, whatever it is, that get the cytokine storm, that get the severe disease to prevent it. Oh, now, so it could be a preventative. No data. I'm not, I'm not saying there are any data about that, but uh, you raise that question. Okay. Now, do we want to put the whole world on what are <laughs> anti-inflammatory? and also immunosuppressive. You've heard about right. immunosuppression in cancer, that people can get other infections also. Do we want to put the whole world on those? Absolutely not. At this point, there's no evidence. But right now, the data that came from you know, the United Kingdom was that uh, there was about a 30% reduction in mortality in those with severe COVID-19 disease who were intubated. Okay. So... <clears throat> Going forward, we've seen a lot and we've heard a lot, particularly from this administration, about how a vaccine is right around the corner. But you've had some, you've had quite a bit of uh, experience with some of this stuff. How realistic is it to believe that we'll have, that, you know, we continue to hear we're going to have a vaccine any moment? How, how realistic is that? Um, we have as you know, about 130 vaccines apparently being in different stages of development. We have vaccines that are further along, phase two now, uh, and hopefully soon some into phase three. We've heard from Dr. Fauci about the, the idea that we could have a vaccine by the end of the year or the beginning of, of next year. But, and we, I really hope that that's the case and we've heard from you know from many people, including Dr. Fauci, that in fact, because we we know that the body makes an immune response, and there is some indication that that immune response can protect people, that if we could duplicate that, we would have a vaccine. But we also need to understand the following. The major efforts, one is an mRNA vaccine, Another is a DNA vaccine. Another is a chimp adenovirus vaccine. These are vaccines uh, that we have no licensed vaccines for anything using that technology. Wow. So we're talking about the technologies we're most relying on to get us over the finish line first have never gone before in most cases beyond phase two. Wow. Not even to phase three and definitely not to licensure. It doesn't mean they won't work. It doesn't mean that this crisis won't allow us to fast forward incredibly fast, you know, well, um, vaccines, uh, technologies that we've all thought were really good. Uh, but we have to recognize we've never done them. We've never manufactured them at mass scale. So now we're going to take technologies that haven't been licensed prove that they work against a type of virus for which we have no vaccines, and then we're gonna manufacture hundreds of millions to billions of doses of them when we've never done it before. It's all at risk. We're trying to you know, do this well, but it's a big risk and we can't, and, and if we don't try it, we're never gonna get there. At the same time, we can't be certain that the first time out of the box that we're actually mm -hmm. gonna succeed. Well, that, so we have to do it, and, and that's 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 what the, what we what we're faced with right now. When I listen to the scientists talk, not the politicians, mind you, but when I listen to scientists, um, 
I, I remember uh, Azar and Fauci in their first press briefing um, in, in the EEOB when they sat us down and spelled out what they knew and what they didn't know. And this is way back in January or February. Um, and, and when I hear you talk about new, you know, new methods of trying to combat the virus, it, and when we talk about some of the um, specifics about this virus, am I wrong when I say this is, or, 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 or are people wrong when they say, look, this is something we haven't seen before. This is a very unique virus. Is that fair to say that this is a, a unique challenge? Or is Absolutely. it overstating? Oh, it is. So, so there's only, a, we have a coronavirus. Uh, we have no vaccines for coronaviruses. We, you know, we have the experience of MERS, which emerged you know, about a decade ago. We have right. SARS, another coronavirus. There are many animal coronaviruses, and there actually are veterinary coronavirus vaccines. But they've also been quite difficult to make, and they've had moderate effects and moderate longevity of the protection and, and a lot of difficulty. But we have made veterinary coronavirus vaccines. Um, and so the answer is that, we again, we're taking a class of viruses for which we don't have human vaccines and a class of, for the most part, um, vaccine technologies for which we don't have licensed vaccines. And if you don't have a licensed vaccine, you don't have a manufacturing plant to make them. And we're taking, now we have, um, I think that one of the reasons why there's been a, a reduction in the time to, to say when we're gonna have it, as you said, Azadar and Fauci were saying uh, six months ago or three months ago, it was gonna take one and a half, yeah. two years to do it. But now we have the $1.2 billion invested by the US government with AstraZeneca contract. We have AstraZeneca, which is not one of the biggest vaccine makers by a long shot, they're not in the top four, saying that they can produce 300 million, 1 billion doses of a vaccine for which we've never, no one's ever manufactured that vaccine, that type of vaccine. So, um, but I believe that's why the timeline has been truncated. So, but so how we'll, dangerous is the, but how dangerous, I mean, we talk about the unique it, for people who haven't got it and who are trying to be safe, sometimes when we talk about this virus, it seems like it's in the ether. It's it's not something they can re relate to in reality. But in reality, when I, when I look at it, and there are so many different things about this virus that strike me as, as unique. I mean, I, I talked to someone who said, look, I had it for a week. It was getting better. Then all of a sudden it got worse. And then there was... Uh, Someone and the symptoms seem to change uh, from person to person, so it's kind of. I, I mean, it's is it as strange to you as a scientist as it seems to me, the layman, that it just doesn't it doesn't remind me of any other virus we've confronted recently, or is that overstating it? No, I think that you really hit the nail on the head. First of all, it's been a hundred years since we had a pandemic like this. Right. Right. None of us were around to see the the flu, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, 19. So we don't really have experience. Yeah, with I'm an old fart, like but not that old. <laughs> None of us have ever been shut in our houses for months before, fearful of having a disease that we don't understand what's going to happen. And we can't predict who's going to deteriorate. I mean, we do know that if you're older, if you have underlying illnesses. Recently, I saw an article that said if you're bald, uh, that you're at a higher risk of getting severe disease, and I'm losing a lot of hair. So that's a little <laughs> scary also, right? Um, we have manifestations. You know, first we hear that it's the it, only thing we have to ask people is, do you have a cough? Do you have shortness of breath? Um, do you have a fever? Then we added straw throat. Then we have, you can't taste properly. Then we figure out that we can find this virus in, in the gut also not just in the respiratory tract. Wow. Then we have people who have, uh, you know, um, thrombolic emboli, right? We get blood clots, young people with blood clots. Then we find that we have young children who are developing this inflammatory disease. So we're learning things every single day about this. And if you ask anybody what they really know, other than all of these um, 
symptoms and signs and illnesses are caused by the virus and that it's spread like crazy and more so in some places than in other places. Um, you have the epicenter in New Jersey and New York going crazy. California and Seattle and Washington hit first, but then going down. Was that just because of social distancing that was put in a week earlier? Uh, or was it because of some nature of the virus that we don't understand? Um, there's so much that we don't understand. And anybody who says that they do uh, is, is just not telling you the whole story. Well, so, I uh, people in the you know biomedical profession are struggling. They're trying to do studies, but they're just as confused in many cases as you might be or any other lay person might be. What we know, and I want to make it as clear as can be, because you're sitting at home and I'm sitting at home. If you stay in your house and I stay in my house and we're careful about contact with stuff that comes into our houses, we're not going to get it. And that the only way to really stop this right now is by these non-pharmaceutical interventions. We are hope and pray that we'll get drugs to treat it. And I believe the first drug that will be able to treat it effectively will be a human monoclonal antibody. And my guess is in three to six months, we'll see those rolling out. And eventually to prevent it on a mass scale is a vaccine, but that vaccine has to be produced, distributed, and it has to be effective and it has to have some longevity you know, to it. And we don't know any of that yet. And we're hoping and we're working like crazy to get to that point. So many people in so many different parts of the world. But every day we also hear about this study and there are lousy studies. This drug works, this drug doesn't work. The, there is no substitute and this is proving it also for what we call double blind randomized clinical trials, control trials, that all of these anecdotal reports are leaving us in crazy, in crazy places. Oh, we're going to use hydroxychloroquine. We're going to use uh, famotidine. Uh, you know, the, we're going uh, to inject paper. Clorox. What? <laughs> we're going to inject Clorox. Yes, exactly. So everybody's coming up with another thing, and you believe me, and, and so on. I believe hard evidence-based science. And then you have to understand that in some populations, a drug may not work, and in other populations, it might work. Um, different age groups, different degrees of exposure, right. different genetic backgrounds. We're not just one homogeneous mass of humanity. We are heterogeneous, and in some cases, uh, but we want to apply something that's going to work for the most people the most period of time, and that's why... Uh, we tried to do these studies on a large scale to figure things out. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the messaging and the problems that we've uh, had uh, and the politics behind this. So uh, join us. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, coming back out of break. Oh, was that okay? For yeah, that was great. That was, I like to do these things pretty much straight, just a conversation. And when we're able to do them face-to-face -face over a cup of coffee, it's even more fun uh, but, you know, it is what it is these days. So um, I think people value a, a real conversation devoid of politics, and it's kind of hard to come by these days. So, well, sure is. In, coming back in three, two, one. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us is Dr. Stephen Hoffman. And he's talking to us a little bit today about uh, the possibility of solving the problems of the coronavirus and the problems that we have in doing so. And one of the questions that keeps coming back to me, and I, I look, I want to stay out of, of politics as much as possible for this because I think there have been many things said on both sides that that uh, that haven't been helpful. But to, to hit the nail on the head, I, I often want to tell politicians to shut the hell up and let the doctors talk. It's because I keep hearing that I can inject Clorox or that sunlight will help or that uh, the... Uh, hydroxychloroquine would, would be great. And none of this is true. We still don't have a virus. We still don't know what's going on. And uh, to me, it seems like the mixed messaging is causing a bigger problem than anything else. And we have the president's going to go out on rallies uh, this week. that He's been asked not to. People say it's safe. And yet at the same time, after all the uh, recent uh, protests, the numbers are spiking again for coronavirus. 
Can we talk a little bit about that, the mixed messaging? How is that causing a problem for us keeping our numbers down? Or is it? So um, that, that's a lot to unpack. That's <laughs> a lot, you know, Brian, that's a lot to answer, you know, standing here, you know, in the next few minutes. And, and let's just say I, I need to start again with what we as a biomedical profession think we understand about the epidemiology or how diseases are transmitted, infectious diseases, right. as being a virus. And, you know, when we started out, there were a, a, a lot, every time you turned around, you heard about a concept in infectious disease transmission, which um, nobody other than the most uh, arcane infectious disease epidemiologist ever talked about, including no doctors knew about it, and that's the basic case reproduction number. That means if one person has it, how many other people will get it from right. that one person, all right? I mean, I, it was amazing to me, having done a career of this, that all of a sudden that became part of the parlance of, of, of normal speak about this thing. And initially, why? we were seeing so? numbers about... What, why, pardon me? Why, why so? Why did that surprise you? Because it wasn't ever anything that was talked about, because we never had a worldwide pandemic, and we never were in, in danger of having getting it ourselves or trying to understand it. And we talk about that in malaria all the time. Because um, we, you know, if we can reduce this basic case, case reproduction number below one, then it goes the, the infection goes away by itself. Because if you, you transmit it to less than one person, then eventually it will go away. And the number that we heard about for, for SARS-CoV-2 was 2 to 2.5 to maybe 3. Uh, and they went up and down and whatever. And now you're hearing from some people in some places it could be over five, and and for so for the on. coronavirus, with the corona with yeah, it's called SARS-CoV-2 is the name of right. this coronavirus. And um, and so that's a big difference. So that if if one person has it and they can transmit to five people, that's that's huge. Now if you but have you it and you don't see any other people, you stay in your house. You can't transmit it to anybody. Right, right. Okay. All right. So now we get at the basic core here about what we've been trying to do with social distancing is to reduce transmission. And let's be very clear that nobody thought we were going to stop this pandemic by social distancing. But what we saw, the horror stories we saw in northern Italy, the horror stories we saw in New York City and New York, southern New York State, where uh, our healthcare delivery systems were being overwhelmed by uh, by this infection. We weren't sure. We didn't have PPE. We didn't have respirators. We had healthcare personnel going down because they didn't have masks and so on. What we have done now, which is really important, is that we've gotten we've given our system, healthcare delivery system, several months to actually get the supplies, get the people trained, get the respirators, so that now, even if there is a spike, we're prepared. Right. right? So when That's we're talk really what, what we did right. in the last three months. When we talk uh, about flattening the curve, we're not when we talking talk about flattening the curve. We're not talking we weren't talking about making it go away. Right. We were talking about giving a, the best chance that we could control it that we could understand who were the most high-risk populations, which were people living right. in we're not, nursing We're homes. not ending it. We're, we're helping people who would care for those who are, are going to get it, giving them the cushion so that they can do it. But it's even more than that, Brian. Suppose you get admitted to a hospital that's got 100 respirators and you're the 101st patient. Yes. Right? You're going to die because you can't get the respirator. So therefore, by flattening that curve, We've given our entire system a breather to get to a point where we can better handle it. That's all it was. Now, That's all what? it was. That's all it was. That's all the well, flattening. Yeah, and it's, it, and it's it important. It. And, and so now we're better set if when the next spike does come, and we hope it doesn't. So now the question is, how do we have a situation where we have governors on one side of their mouth saying we have an emergency because it's going up again, and on the other hand, saying, let's move to phase three and open everything up, all right? Yeah. I don't even begin to understand 
about that concept, but you have two things going on. You have the economic and financial hardship of people trying to stay alive and keep businesses going, and then you have the issue of protecting people. I'm a doctor. It's not my job to figure out how to protect the financial health of everybody, but this is the conundrum that our politicians and our leaders find themselves in, that they have to do both at the same time, and they're having guys like me saying, shut it down, keep it shut down, all right? And then you have other people saying, hey, these people, are they're going to lose their businesses forever, and then what are we going to do? And then there are going to be some people depressed and commit suicide, and people are going to die anyway. Or people are going to be afraid to go to the hospital with a heart attack, and they're going to die also. So it's very complicated what's going on, and um, my belief is that we still should be continued to practice the you know social distancing because I believe the next thing that's going to happen is we are going to have drugs. We are going to be able to treat people. It's going to take some time, and as I said, I think the first will be what we call a monoclonal antibody, and we are going to have vaccines, but it's not going to be until you know early next year at the minimum. They won't be perfect initially. They're not going to be the you know every the be all and end all, right. either from the point of view of protective efficacy or the capacity to get them to people. So let me just take a little side and say, if we were going to have so we at Cenarian Protein Potential, our companies can't compete with everybody who's way ahead of us in terms of making a COVID nineteen vaccine. But what we, we're trying to do is make a vaccine that could be ideal to cover the whole population. So what would that mean? Number one, you don't have to take the vaccine in a clinic. The current vaccines, you're going to have to go somewhere and get injected, and you're going to be with a lot of right. other people, which is going to put you at risk also. <laughs> so, so I'd like cured, to, we're going to be at we're risk. trying to make a vaccine that can be taken orally at home. So we can send you a packet of four capsules or sachets or whatever, and you'll drink the vaccine. Right. Right. That vaccine, we want to be kept at room temperature. The vaccines that are being made have to be kept at the temperature of minus 60 to minus 80 degrees centigrade, at least for three of the four major candidates, which means on dry ice and so on. Well, so well, let me interrupt you for that. So these the first vaccines won't be even if they're approved, won't be available for mass consumption. You're talking about trying to move from a targeted consumption to mass consumption, correct? Well, let, let me just say that they might, they will, we can figure out how to deliver them, but it's going to be complicated, all right? Yeah. If I was there, I don't know how old you were there, but I was there when the first uh, oral polio vaccines came out, and we all lined up at a school, and, I remember and everybody that. took it underneath their tongue and stuff right. like that. I remember that. We would, I, we think that we can take it even a step forward, further, that we could actually send you the vaccine at home, and it will be stable at room temperature. It can be taken orally, and it's going to immunize you in your. It's called the mucosa, the the, right. the membranes that line your mouth, your respiratory tract, your intestines, and so on. And that, that's where we need the immunity to take place because that's where this virus comes in. So what we're trying to do, and it's a long shot, it's a really long shot, is try to make a vaccine that would overcome all of the problems of delivery, uh, storage, and perhaps even be a better, uh, what we call an immunogen, to induce the antibodies and killer T cells that we think are protective. And it sounds- It's a long shot, but we, we can't compete in the other arenas so we're trying to compete on that arena. It sounds like, in the end, if if humanity is able to survive this, and hopefully will, that we'll learn a lot from it. There will be a lot learned from this going forward. One would Tremendous hope. amount of learned already. Um, and as we go forward, all of these technologies have been waiting in the background to see the light of day are now being pushed forward in a way that would never have happened um, we hope there's not another pandemic, but we're not sure that there won't be. Right. And, and as such, we should be way, way better prepared. We hope that we don't forget this lesson, forget to stock, you know, to, to invest in our infrastructure, in, in, in our supplies and so on, uh, in our preparedness, 
which we have very short-term memories as human beings yeah. for, for whatever reasons, and we always want to go off to the next problem. All so, right. so, so um, let me ask you a couple qu- uh, just blunt questions. Right now, as we sit to, to today, do you think we should still, A, engage in social distancing? Absolutely. Should we be wearing a mask? Absolutely. Should we be washing our hands and using hand sanitizer? Absolutely. Should we... By the way, washing your hands well is just as good, if not better. So we don't have to use a lot of hand sanitizer. Good, because my hands dry out. Keeping it around. (laughs) (laughs) And would you be in large social settings right now? Okay, so you have to understand, first of all, I'm 71 years old. Yeah. I'm in the high-risk group. But I have to tell you, I manage a company, right? We manage, we have 80 people. We've managed to stay at full operational capability the entire time. I don't go in because I don't need to. I can talk to people on Zoom like like this, but uh, we have a staff there. I have a meeting uh, every morning at 8.30, the three infectious disease doctors on our staff. We go over every individual. We have every single individual screened every single day. We ask them the question, besides the symptoms, have you been sick and so on? Have you been exposed to anybody who has COVID-19? Have you been near anybody who might have had an exposure? Have you been in a group setting? If any of those questions are yes, then it's likely that person has to stay home for the next 14 days. Because I can't risk bringing a person into my pristine clinical, we're manufacturing malaria vaccine, we're manufacturing vaccines for diarrheal diseases and that soon COVID. I can't afford to, if one person comes into that facility and spreads it, we're done. All right. And, and so we have had one of our staff develop COVID-19, but we identified that person within three hours of their exposure, wow. kept them out, and they didn't get symptoms for a week. But we were at the game because of the way that we're approaching this. So... I can tell you that I can't allow people into my facility who have been in group settings. You know, we're doing a lot for Black Lives Matter. We're trying to be part of the solution, but we forbade anybody from our team going to a protest. And if they did, they're out. I mean, they have to go sit down. Well, that's the science days. of it. Yeah, I mean, that's just the the nuts and bolts science of it. I understand. We that. have to. We we have a larger mission. We're trying to make a vaccine. As of today, more people have died this year of malaria than of COVID-19. Um, and so we're trying to make a vaccine to prevent those deaths. And so we have to think in a, in a larger scale. So you get, the real question was, would I go out into a group? And the yes. answer is, I personally wouldn't. And I can't let my team members go out either. And, and that's tough. Yeah, and I understand. As we open up. So, but as we're opening up, I guess that takes me back to the question that we were seeing a spike in infections. We're seeing a spike in uh, the daily deaths, um, although not a large one, but we are seeing it uh, in the last two weeks because people have gotten out and about and because of protests and because, and not just protests, I mean, cities have begun to open up. So as we open up, as we go back out and and begin to socialize, and humans are social animals, there's no way around that. That's, That's, you know, anthropologists tell us that. So what it sounds like you know you're you're trying to weigh risk versus leading a life and i i personally don't understand people who are encouraging large scale mass you know uh, accumulation of people but that i i get why some people do it but you're telling us and i guess the science of it is telling us that at the end of the day we're weighing risks and we we have to decide for ourselves whether we want those risks, but there's certain places where you simply can't have them. Correct? It, that, again, depends on who you are. Right. Right. As a uh, bio, you know, as a, as a medical doctor, and, you know, who specializes in infectious diseases, um, to me, it seems quite obvious. It clearly doesn't seem as obvious to a lot of other individuals, <laughs> and we won't go into names here. Right. Um, I, I, we're actually trying to promote large gathering. Right. Um, it's 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 intuitively obvious to everybody that if you're not exposed to somebody with COVID nineteen, you can't get it. All right. Now you're weighing the risk. And and look, we live in Maryland. 
Maryland uh, had the lowest, you know, uh, the last seven day average was the lowest we've had in two months, both for deaths and for cases. But Maryland has been slower. There's places where we're seeing the spiking is in cases in states that have opened up um, or never really closed completely. Right. Um, and um, Maryland is going to phase, you know, Montgomery County is finally going to phase two. Right. Montgomery County was the lowest ever yesterday. Um, so we'll just have to see how we're, we don't know. We can make all of the epidemiological, mathematical, computational predictions um, that we want, but we have to observe what's going on. My, all of my training tells me that this is not a smart thing to do, that people have to have self-discipline, suck it up, and then we have to figure out how to support the people and the businesses that do need to get going, keep going. Um, but that um, the many models show that if we reduce uh, trans this, these um, what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions by more than 50%, that we're going to see big spikes and lots of excess deaths. All right. We're already at, I don't know, 120,000 deaths. People are now predicting 200,000. That's way more than we talked talked about two months ago. Right. Way, way more. And um, But you know what? I'll tell you the truth. It's not more. This is what people forget. And I was there. I was there in the, in the Eisenhower office building at the very beginning when Fauci, when Dr. Fauci and, and Azar came out and gave us the numbers. And I walked out of that briefing at, at the end of January, first part of February, I forget when it was. And I, there were reporters talking and we said, what'd you think? And I'll never forget what a reporter from Reuters told me. Um, Steve Holland said, you know what? I walked out of that briefing more afraid than when I walked in. They don't have a handle on it. And I said, yeah, it appears. And the numbers that they gave us then are the numbers that we're finding now. So, I mean, yeah. the, the doctors, the people who knew, weren't confident that we had a handle on it from the beginning. And the numbers that we're seeing were predicted by the people, the, the scientists from the beginning, saying that if we don't get a handle on this right now, this is what we're looking at. And it's frightening to me that we still continue to, to ignore the science for the sake of our socialization. Does that, yeah. uh, and, does that... and, and um, so I have that, you know, I have my two youngest sons are physicians, uh, are doctors. And every time my wife and I want to talk about doing something or relaxing things, they're like cracking a whip over us. <laughs> and, and, uh, Cause even we want, want to do something. Sure. And, this past weekend, my mother is 96. She lives, she's compass mentis. She lives by herself in a fifth floor of a 14 story building on the Jersey shore. And, <laughs> but she's been alone. My brother fortunately is up there, but my wife and I got in the car. This is the first, first venture out really, um, drove there without stopping, put on like special masks and stuff, walked through the lobby, went up to be with my mother for the day, have dinner, lunch or whatever. My sons were vehemently opposed to it but we said you got to do it and i don't believe unless she has covid19 right. um, which she doesn't um um that we were at really great risk uh, risk but we really were very careful very controlled and we 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 got down to where i grew up on the jersey shore and the parking lot of the beach i've never seen more cars i've never wow. seen more people walking around with you know, in groups and masks on a Saturday morning than I saw that day. So unless we're completely off in the biomedical profession here, we're going to see this virus sustained and increasing in a lot of places where we've controlled it because people are not willing to forego um, these kind of activities. We have an office in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has done a fantastic job of controlling it. Our scientist who's there, who's a regulatory scientist, lives there with her husband and two children. When they talk about lockdown, it's not what we do. They weren't allowed out of their house for two months. Wow. One person was allowed to go like with a ticket to go buy groceries, and that's it. But she never went out of her house. Her kids never went out of her house. And that's how you control it. I mean, we can't do that in the United States, unfortunately no, or unfortunately. 
And we didn't even try it in a number of parts of the country. And that makes it very difficult to control with all of the interactions we have. So um, we hope against hope that this is not going to play out the way it was predicted at the beginning and the way it's actually played out. But the data are staring us in the face. Yeah. When we come um, back, we'll have... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's that's really where it stands. And as I said, you know, you've got to keep up these non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, everybody has to make a decision for themselves, but they have to understand. And we've heard particularly Dr. Fauci on TV saying, you know, I wear a mask not only to protect myself, but to protect others, but even more so to communicate to others the importance of this. So when I go out, I go running. And last Sunday, a few days ago, I went running three and a half miles and on trails in the woods and things like that. Nobody was wearing a mask. I know. I'm... And my view is that that's it. unfortunately and, and they're, what they're thinking is, well, I'm going to be outside and where am I going to get it from? But when I pass you, you've made me more anxious. What is the big deal about wearing a mask for the next, you know, year is what it's going to be. Um, it's not such a big heartache to do it. What are you, you know, you wear a surgical mask and you're communicating that we're all in this together. When you don't wear it, I believe that you're communicating um, that I'm standing alone. I don't really think, how can I get it in the open air? And I right. don't care about you. All right. And, and we wear a mask in a lot of cases in these settings to, because of caring about other people not necessarily ourselves. So I'm a big advocate of wearing masks. We have thousands of masks yeah. in our business. We we were there before anybody else in terms of giving masks out, giving them for home, giving them for work and wearing them. And now of course it's required in that setting by our landlord, but that came much later. Yeah, I like my Playboy mask. I get the little Playboy bunny on the side. I wear it. I, I offer them to everybody. Hey, have a hey, Playboy mask. <laughs> given what you're not paying me for this, why don't you send me one of those? I'll, I'll be happy to send you a Playboy mask. <laughs> well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have a few final thoughts. So, uh, Dr. Hoffman, uh, one of the things I like to do when, when I have people on the show is kind of humanize it a little bit. And in your case, I guess what I want to ask is not, not who your favorite rock and roll band is, although that, that's always a good question, or what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow to see if you're a Monty Python fan. So can but, I give you an, just an aside, a uh, sure. interest story for favorite rock and roll band? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, I went to Asbury Park High School. Uh oh, I know um, where this is going. <laughs> and I'm in, actually in the Hall of Fame of Asbury Park High School. And of course, you know that Bruce Springsteen's yes. first album is Greetings from, from Asbury, Asbury Park. Park. Yeah. He's one year younger than I am. Um, but he also, it's Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Band right. And the E Street Band is named for E Street in Belmar, New Jersey. And because there was a house at 1105 E Street where the band practiced because I, the original, um, I believe it was piano player in that band lived in that house. Wow. So that, that house at 1105 East street, Belmar, New Jersey is the house I lived in till I was 13 when we moved and my family sold it to the family of the, uh, of the original, um, member of the East street band. Wow. Well, that's... <laughs> so now if you ask me, what's my there... favorite band, there's a, there's a story behind it. I guess that would be Bruce Springsteen and the East street band. <laughs> <laughs> Baby, One we of were... my favorites anyway. Maybe we were born to run. So <laughs> what activity do you miss the most uh, with the shutdown? What would you like to do that you haven't been able to do? The, the most of course is hugging my children and their wives and, and grandchild and so on. Yeah. There's no question and we Zoom with them all the time. Um, my um, oldest son and 18-month-old and grandchild and his wife live in outside in Basalt, Colorado. Uh, they were here in February, but we have, you know, we Zoom every day or uh, FaceTime or, or whatever uh, with the baby, and we're missing that. Uh, my youngest son is now going to start his residency in 
at UC San Francisco, and we miss him and his wife. And then my middle son is finishing a residency at the University of Maryland, so he comes over uh, originally with his girlfriend, but she's now out in California because they're moving to Stanford um, for a dinner. And I, he sits in the backyard, and he'll be here Saturday night <laughs> to help me with Father's Day. And he sits in the backyard, and we sit up on the deck because he's seeing patients every you know oh my, every day yeah, yeah. with you know who have COVID nineteen. So we you know, and he's intense in terms of not wanting to expose us. Uh, but it's basically family and not being able to be close to family and hug and kiss and and have that kind of intimate interaction. Yeah, I, I hear you. I've got a grandson I can't and two uh, boys out in uh, Los Angeles. My youngest is with us, locked down here, so it, it, at uh-huh. least we get him around. But um, sometimes hugging him is uh, I want him to bathe. But that's <laughs> but uh, the other. So I have to ask uh, if it's. Bruce Springsteen, who's your? What's your favorite Bruce Springsteen song? Uh, too many, too really, too many. To uh, depends on my mood. Right. <laughs> you know, there was one that Manfred Mann did, uh, "Blinded by the Light." I'm blinded by the light. Yeah, and of course, the movie is unbelievable. Did you see the movie? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, uh, but I the- actually watched that at midnight. Just you know, the end of it uh, last week on on somewhere on on. TV. What have you been binge watching? Uh, what's that? What have you been binge watching? Ah, uh, so uh, right right now we're on billions. Ah, um, we just finished the Killing Eve and uh, Bosch. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> we we sat through the Orville. That was my son's uh, uh, secret pleasure was watching. You know the. Um, Seth MacFarlane show the Orville, so uh, I just got done. I, that. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a science but, fiction one, but it's kind of like Star Trek. But you'd like you'd like it. I mean, there's some science in yeah. there. No, so what's been interesting about this process is that uh, we're running our business, so we're working very hard. We've got people in work. My wife goes in; she's the head of manufacturing. Only when we manufacture, we're here every day. We of course get to talk about what we're going to eat for lunch at <laughs> breakfast and at, at, for dinner at lunch. We order, we have everything delivered. We are able to put in an exercise program and my sons, you know, introduced us to Peloton. We don't have a Peloton bike, but we do their exercise programs. And um, I hadn't run in 15 years because I was afraid of my hips and knees. And so I, I started <laughs> running again and we play and, and I'm able to play golf. Um, which is is relatively nearby. So, um, well, I guess it's, you it's can a full social, day. Yeah, that I, golf is one that I've I've seen people out uh, on the course, and I don't understand why they'll be in a foursome um, and they won't wear a mask. I mean, you're, yeah. So, so I only go. We belong to a, a place called uh, Bretton Woods, which is run by the International Monetary Fund, um, and we only go after six o'clock. We play, you know, my wife uh, doesn't play. She may putt a little bit and we walk around and we, no, we're not, we don't come close to anybody. Right. And the course is at that point generally wide open. Um, so, yes, we know not only foursomes, I've seen sixsomes. Right. Right. Not- With people, I mean, yeah, again, I, I don't get it. Um, we hope that those people don't have it or transmit it and so on. But this desire for human contact this desire for close interaction which is built into us i guess um is what is going to continue to keep this thing going uh unfortunately um but 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 yes so we don't go at the regular times to uh to end on a note of hope i hope (laughs) um how do you foresee this going down do you think that uh we'll be able to um Take care of the coronavirus. Do you think that uh, we've learned something from it? What's what's the path forward? So let me start with the hope message. I believe that we're in this for the next year, but I believe that a year, year and a half from now, we will have drugs. We will have a vaccine or we'll have multiple vaccines. How good they are remains to be seen. Um, recognize that we have the flu every year and we all take back flu shots and they're not that good, but <laughs> they do take 
A, they prevent it in some people, and B, they prevent the development of severe disease in many more people. So uh, the concern here is not that you or I would get uh, COVID-19 disease, uh, that would, but that we'll get a bad COVID-19 disease. So I believe that the interventions, we will have interventions which will take the edge off it, prevent it, and prevent you know severe disease. We've heard about the dexamethasone, a nice new intervention. Um, how much we'll have to live with it and be part of the of the vernacular two years from now, three years from now, remains to be seen. We are not going to be living like this a year and a half from now. We back to normal interactions. Um, it's just not going to happen uh, that that we are going to live like this for the rest of our lives. Right. That's why having some self-discipline, staying with this until we we're able to catch up with it. And I'm very confident that modern medicine, biomedicine, pharmaceuticals will be developed and um, we will figure out how to live with it. Um, you have to remember that I work on a disease called malaria that yeah. there were 228 million cases last year in the world and probably 500,000 deaths, all right? And people do live with that also. It's a nightmare for some of them, but they live with it and we're gonna figure out how to live with this. And I'm very confident that we're gonna have interventions both to treat and prevent. There you go. Well, Dr. Hoffman, I, I appreciate your time. I really appreciate it. And, and putting it out in black and white for people, devoid of the uh, the politics is what this was all about. And so I really do appreciate it. Hope you can come back sometime and talk some more. All right, Brian. Well, thank you for having me. And um, it's a pleasure to be able to uh, rant and rave a bit about <laughs> uh, this situation. Um, Not to and, mention Bruce Springsteen. Uh, you know, just in the, you know, if, if we're still on, I mean, yeah. the end is really, A, we're going to have ways of dealing with this. So stay and have self-discipline to get to that point. We don't want anybody listening to this to become a casualty, uh, to either die, develop severe disease, which is debilitating for the rest of your life, or to transmit it to somebody else, even worse that does die or develops debilitating disease. So I, my, my, if I could communicate anything to every, anybody here would be, please be aware of the fact that we are gonna solve this, but you have to have some self-discipline and stay with the, with the recommendations for now. Thank you so much, doctor. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.